Good morning, everybody. It is good to see everyone. We've got a lot of people here today. Got some new faces and some previous faces. I'm not going to say old faces. (laughs) Regardless of what things we've encountered or struggles we've overcome or been faced with in getting to this moment, no matter where we are in our day, God has something he wants. I believe he's always speaking and he has something for us. So if y'all would agree with me in prayer and let's just ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that um, you know everything that's going to happen before it happens. It doesn't mean that you cause everything to happen that happens, but you know about it. And we can make a choice when things are great and when things are not so great to be receptive, to be listening, to be desiring to hear what you have to say. And Father, we are so at a loss without you. We do not live by natural things or natural means alone. We cannot have life without you. And like Jesus said to the enemy in his first temptation attempt, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. God, we want to hear every word that you're speaking. And if it comes through a child, if it comes through a song, if it comes through a prophetic word, if it comes through just reading of the word and exhortation, Lord, let it be unto us according to your word, just like Mary said. And we want to do like Mary said, that whatever you say to do, we want to do it. And so, Father, I ask that you would speak through me and uh, speak to us and let us hear what is on your heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a simple message today, and the, the title is, Do You Know Who You Are? And the Lord gave that to me, I, I want to say it was a couple of years ago, I was, I was in prayer, and he was, I, I, he was really speaking to my heart, and all of a sudden, I just got this incredible understanding, revelation, if you will, I could just see it so clearly, just an awareness of who we are in Christ, and I could see, it's like I just, I was filled with so much emotion and passion, and I just, I wanted to run down the street and run into restaurants and just grab people and go, do you know who you are? Do you know what God's left you? Do you, you know, like, a, like an attorney who goes out to the heirs of estates and, and tells them what they've inherited. I just, I was so overcome with that. And the Lord reminded me of it this week, and I felt like that was the title. And I, and I, I really believe that it ties in with what he was saying last week. He does want us to take back things that have been abandoned, things that have been lost, things that have been stolen, um, intimacy with the Father. You know, at one point, I'm sure we can all identify with and say uh, we may have been more passionate at different times in our life and our relationship with Jesus. And so whatever the area is, God wants to take back those things. And so do you know who you are is the title that he gave me. I want to start with 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and I I really was kind of uh, surprised by this verse when I was doing a little bit of research, because you may know it, but Paul says, do not let them despise your youth. And I always thought that Timothy was like a 14 or 17 or 20-year-old, you know, pastor, and Paul was telling him not to let him look down on you, but really... Anybody under the age of 40 could be looked down as being a youth in that day and age. And so I, I, I thought it was cool because in our day and age, the word youth can apply to anybody. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are, you're a youth compared to him, to the father. 
And, and, but I want to look at the word despise. What does it mean to despise? How do you despise something? You know, if, you're in a, if you've ever been in a real estate deal, the other party will try to diminish or devalue or depreciate what you think is so valuable. I remember one time we were trying to sell our house, and this, I really didn't want to sell our house. And this lady came by, and she was a real estate investor or agent or something, and she just asked me point blank, do you even want to sell your house? You know, it's like she was, and she was trying to pick out every wrong thing with it and saying it's not worth what you say it's worth. And, but that's a negotiating tactic of an adversary, and that's something that the enemy does to us. And even though Paul was speaking to Timothy about other believers not letting them despise his youth, it's something that the, and this is the way that the enemy works. He, he was challenging Timothy to not let them look down on you, to stand up for yourself. Not in a boastful way, not in a self-help way, not in an elevating yourself way, but Timothy was commissioned to do a job. He was placed in as a pastor. And so I want to read 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 13. If you have your paper Bible, you can turn there. I love paper Bibles, by the way. I'm reading from, uh, I believe this is the NAS version, but prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. And again, this is talking to a possibly 30 to under 40 age man. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation and teaching. I believe this is part of, of, our, of taking our territory because one of the ways that the enemy, well, if you've ever been to a garage sale, this is another bartering example, you'll say $10 for something and then people will come up and say, ah, it's not really worth $10, that's worth $8. Or, you know what, I'll give you five, that's all I've got. And then they'll turn around and they'll buy something else and they'll pull out $100 and I'm like, I thought you only had $5. But they, they try to get you to agree to that lower value, and, and, and they try to put pressure on you. And that's what the enemy does. And so there is an, an aspect of not allowing anyone, whether it's someone being, a, it could even be someone that loves you, someone in your family who's just got an unrenewed mindset, or they're not in tune with the Lord that day. Don't let the enemy despise what God is doing in your life and what he's called you to. For me, knowing who you are, a big key that God has used in my life in helping to answer that question. And I would say that I could answer that question more in the last several years than I ever could before in my life. I'm 46 years old, so I don't qualify for that youthful thing again, in the, in the, at least in the biblical days, but I still feel the, feel the youthfulness. But what has helped me to answer that question is knowing why I'm here and who he is in my life. That helps me understand who I am. And some of y'all know me, a lot, well, a lot of y'all know me, but one of the things that I talk about a lot is kingdom, and I'm going to try to not do that today because I don't want to be put, I don't want to be typecast. <clears throat> Too late. But I want to talk about what it means to be a king. And so I'm going to talk about kingdom just a little bit to help reference that subject. But I really believe that understanding the concept of kingdom is a big picture idea that helps all of the Bible come into focus and puts it into perspective it helps us answer that question, and it helps us understand how do we take things back that have been stolen from us. So kingdom is a big-picture idea that started in Genesis. It didn't start in the New Testament. And all along the way, from Genesis to Revelations, there are, I call them nuggets. There are little details that are truth that have a big impact when you understand 
how to rightly divide them and put them together and to compare and contrast. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter was referencing a verse out of Exodus 19.6. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus called, I mean, sorry, God called the Israelites a royal priesthood. And that would be a juxtaposition or a contradiction in terms because typically priests don't think of themselves as being royalty and royalty vice versa. But that's where we're different. We are a royal priesthood, and Peter re- reinforces that in 1 Peter 2.9. And I will read it for you, but he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is a big... I heard that term my whole life growing up. You're a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. What's a royal priesthood? I don't see any. I, in the denomination I grew up in, we didn't have priests. And, you know, in our day and age, we don't esteem royalty very much. I mean, royalty is a negative thing these days. Um, but it had a specific meaning. See, priests have a specific role. They're different. And the definition for a priesthood, this is out of Strong's, an order or body of priests so that Christians, Christians are called because they have access to God. And they don't offer physical but spiritual sacrifices. They are of a kingly rank. They are exalted to a moral rank and freedom which exempts them from the control of everyone but God and Christ. And it's a term that's not found in secular authors. So it's a concept that really it's God's idea. We're to be a priesthood. We're not, see, one of the things that I, that I talk about when I talk about kingdom is we weren't created to dominate one another. And kings subdue and pursue. They pursue things and they subdue territories and they subdue enemies. And we were created to be kings, I believe, but we were not created to dominate one another. We were created to be ruled by him. And so understanding, the, answering this question, do you know who you are? Right there, we are, one answer to that question is we're a body of kings. But how would you despise a king? If you were the enemy of a king, how do you despise a king? How do you depreciate or devalue or diminish them? One great way, I mean, you've, now kings in our day and age, another example that might make a little bit more sense to us would be someone who is a king in their field, like Jeff Bezos. He's a king and he's a captain of industry. Um, LeBron James, to use a sports example, everybody, some of my friends know I'm a sports dork. Izzy's laughing over there. I don't get sports. But he's a king. He's a captain in his industry. He's, he's gone out, and he has pursued, and he's subdued his craft. And there's a verse that actually talks about that that I'm going to end with in just a moment. But one great way to despise a king is to convince that king that he's not royalty. And I believe that's one of the things that the enemy has worked to do ever since the fall in the garden. If you have no idea that you're even an heir, you won't even attempt to try to access what belongs to your family. And so let me share a couple of big things about kingdom that completes the picture of why kingdom is a big idea. Kingdoms are a different form of government. They colonize. They extend their territory by extending their influence. The most successful kingdom in the history of the world was Rome. Unfortunately, they did it with force and destruction. But a good, successful kingdom doesn't try to bring citizens to live with the king. 
a good kingdom tries to make the citizens live like the king. It's a very different um, concept. So kings want to influence a territory to conform it to their culture and their customs. We don't have a lot of good examples of what kings and kingdoms should look like. So usually when we hear it, it sounds negative. That's why I said Rome is, is, was the most successful, but they're a pretty negative example in many ways. Kings have dominion over territory and people. And God's kingdom is similar, but it's different. In God's kingdom, God lives with us and in us, and he trains us to live like him. The Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom doesn't start when we die and go there. The kingdom starts the moment we receive what he gave us. Our inheritance starts, you inherit something when someone else dies, not when you die. Christ died and he rose again. And he obtained that inheritance for us, and it's ours to enter into. But an heir does not have legal access to an inheritance until they reach an age of maturity. That's in the natural world talking about natural things. But from a spiritual sense, your maturity is not age-based. It's relationship-based. It's responsibility. It's response-based. How do we say yes to what he's saying? Another thing about kings, kings are born into their position. They're not voted in, and so their authority is inherent. But in the natural sense, kings are their own authority. And that's why we don't see any very good examples of kings, because authority, real true authority, only happens when you submit to authority. So a natural king can't submit to an authority, because otherwise he would be being subdued and subordinate to that other authority. But in God's kingdom, he is the king of kings, and the Lord, he is the ultimate king. So put these thoughts and these concepts together and think about what did we lose when we, lost, when, when we fell in the garden? Did we lose real estate in heaven? If, if God wanted us to be in heaven, why didn't he start us out in heaven? We lost a relationship with the Father. And so from that very moment, God put in a plan. But second thing, think about it like this. If kingdoms want to colonize and extend influence, and we didn't start out in the homeland, if you will, if you want to call heaven the homeland. Earth is more like a colony, and we were set here to be kings, to rule it in relationship with him. And in Genesis 1.26, he says, you have dominion over the birds of the air, the animals, everything that I've created. But the one thing that he didn't say we have dominion over, it's important to see what is it not saying. We don't have dominion over each other. We were not created to subordinate and subdue one another. We are created to serve and submit to one another and to love one another. So those are some of the differences between a king and a kingdom. I mean, a natural kingdom and God's kingdom. But all kingdoms subdue enemies and surroundings. And I talk about it for a uh, Kingdom's a big deal to me. It's, it's a part of my assignment and my calling. And, and we've got a, a specific, you know, we've got some really in, impactful things that happened during our journey and our testimony. But... It is not a small concept that the kingdom started before the fall. It was the original idea. God was not some crazy deity who said, I want to see who will be good and who will be bad, and the bad ones I'm going to throw into hell. You know, that's not what he, he put us on this earth to live in relationship with him and to extend his culture and his customs and his influence through that relationship. The fall happened after that. So when we get saved... We're being restored back to that potential place of relationship. And then 
we walk it out by saying yes on a daily basis. Jesus said, I only say and do what I see and hear him doing and saying. But most of the church has only known the salvation part of the story, the shedding of blood, the provision of sacrifice, which is precious and priceless. And without that, nothing else matters. But that's the starting point. The Israelites were delivered through the Red Sea. Deliverance was the starting point. But they weren't supposed to live in deliverance. They were supposed to live in victory and occupation to go and take their promised land. That started when they walked through the Jordan River. They were both bodies of water. They had to walk through both of them. But the Jordan River didn't stop until they put their foot into it. It was a different... And so I've referenced a lot of different examples and illustrations. I mean, stories from the Bible. And that is a secret of the kingdom. I think it's so important. I'm so thankful for the stories that were planted in me and shared with me as a little child. Because now I can reference them. And a picture is worth a thousand words. A picture can say more than you can say with words. That's why we use that expression. Well, these stories in the Bible, the story of the, of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea. Y'all who know that story and have studied the Bible and have grown up listening to it, you understand many of the details inherently with a split second without me having to go over it all. Now, we still should exhort and teach and read and go over it. It's important to pay attention to the details and to go over all those little things. But it's important for us to be planting these seeds and renewing our minds, not so that we can do an emphatic biblical study on every time, but when God speaks about the Red Sea, revelation can occur in your heart. So a friend of mine, some friends of mine were in special forces, and one of them was a Navy SEAL. And when Saddam Hussein was in power, um, they would go into his palace to mess with him. They would leave him pictures that would speak thousands of words. They would leave a rose on his pillow. They would fold up a flag and stick it under his pillow. They were sending him messages. We're watching. We're right here. Whenever we're ready, we're going to take you out. They didn't need to have a press conference and hire a publicist and write books. They just sent little pictures. And that's, a, that's why it's so important to renew our minds to the word of God because God's pictures are contained within these stories. He didn't just do those things so that he could have Bible studies for stories for us to study. He did all those things because he was working towards an end to bring a savior. He was building a holy nation that he could bring a savior through, that he could restore us and make a way for us to come back into our inheritance. But if we have a limited or incorrect perspective on these things, we can, we can miss out. And I'm passionate about renewing the mind and, and learning and digging into the details. I want people to see the whole picture. I want to see the whole picture. And I feel like the understanding the kingdom at a big level helps me put these things into perspective. So I want to share uh, an example of, of where the effect of having a wrong perspective. Uh, earlier this week, I was at a job site, and this, this foreman, his crew, for different reasons, they didn't show up. And so this gentleman is older than me. I think he's in his 60s um, or late 50s. He's not in the greatest physical condition. We are, he's working on a tank that looks like a big box, and there's about this much room from the top of the tank to the roof. And he says, you know what? I'm going in there, and I'm going to get this work done. I mean, he's, he's, he's that kind of personality. His job site is immaculate. He, he's very, but the words that come out of his mouth are so indicative of what's going on in his heart. This guy's a great guy. I love him. I'm not, I'm not dogging him. But 
as we were there and I was looking at all these incredible things, I saw some roots of wrong doctrine coming out of him. As he was climbing into this tank, he was making a joke and he said, yeah, I hope I don't fall down. You know, I'm old and fat and rah, 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 and, and I just don't know why, you know, God would play a cruel joke like that on. And, I, and immediately I'm sitting there and I'm like, why would he even say that? Like, why, what would make him think? And the Lord just began to show me, well, people have a wrong idea of what it means for me to be sovereign. They think that anything that happens in life is me doing it to them. And that, and that God, you got to fear God and be afraid of him. And whatever he wants to have happen is going to happen. And don't you get in his way. And if you do, he's going to run over, you know. And I'm, I'm being comical. I like to, <laughs> I use a little bit of drama to illustrate the point. But it, God told the Israelites, don't test me in Deuteronomy. That's a truth. That's in the Bible. Satan was rebuked by Jesus when he tried to get Jesus to test God. Jesus quoted that. That was one of Jesus's responses for overcoming the enemy. Well, God also said in Malachi to test me in your finances. So one of the things that you need to, we need to be able to do as believers is rightly divide the word of God and know that when God speaks, his word is always true all the time. He's not schizophrenic. He's not contradicting himself. He's not a hypocrite. But when he says, don't test me, but then over here he says, test me in a specific thing, He's not contradicting himself. And it may not appear evident to you right off the bat why that is. So that gentleman, I believe what I was seeing was just the fruit of these wrong doctrines. It says in Proverbs that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't say that that's the total definition of wisdom. But some people just stop there and they believe, I'm supposed to be afraid of God. And, and then they've been taught that anything that happens is God's will and God did it because there's only one God. Okay, so that makes for a really messed up life because anything, anytime anything bad happens, you're left to knocking on wood, which is superstition. Fear of, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the totality of wisdom. But if you don't know how to divide the word, that's why we need the whole word. We need the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need these stories. We need, um, we need the insight that can only come by comparing all these words. Okay, so... If you know one verse and not the other, you can build a strong, fortified, reinforced belief system that's wrong. If we put enough wrong ideas together, we can make a strong system of thought or stronghold, like a fort. Speaking of wrong ideas and forts, we're in Fort Bend. And First Colony is right down the road, right? Does anybody know what First Colony is? Does anybody think they know what First Colony is? I moved to First Colony in high school, and I hated it. And that was part of my personal story with Jesus, because I did not want to live out here. And I thought and was under the impression that First Colony was the first colony in Texas. And there's a lot of people that believe that. The truth is... The first colony was a really big, large area of land settled by Stephen F. Austin. And first colony, the subdivision, is a tiny little piece of it. But there's a lot of people that think that first colony is first colony. I know, because I was one of them. Anyways, that's just a little bit of humor. But going back to the big idea, do you know who you are? From God's perspective, we're a royal priesthood. And I want to talk about the king side of that. We were created and destined to be kings. I've already mentioned that 
dominion was given to man in Genesis 1.26. And we know more of what a good king is, not by good examples, but mostly by bad. We know what we don't like in kings. When a king is preoccupied with one thing, they're not ruling well. Some kings get preoccupied with conquest. Solomon got preoccupied with women. Some kings get preoccupied with their own fame and glory. It was never God's idea for the Israelites to have a king. He wanted to be their king. But they wanted a king like the other nations. So that was not God's idea. But again, authority comes from submitting to authority. And a king should not be concerned with any other thing than what the king is saying to them. That's the only thing we should be preoccupied with. So if we're in a church service, like last week, we almost didn't have a sermon because we just kept following the leading of the king. And the sound system wasn't causing problems last week. And, and there was just, um, it was awesome. It was amazing. And when you're in a restaurant or out in public or in a business meeting, you know, Ty's got a really cool testimony of being in a business meeting and sharing a testimony in the middle of a business meeting, you know, not supposed to talk about religion and politics and business. And what ended up happening is he ended up getting to pray for someone and they got healed in that business meeting. And now they do business with him, but they don't hardly ever talk about business when he calls. They, they want to talk about the things of God, right? I'm getting the story mostly right. I can tell. But as kings, in, in his kingdom, we're to look out for and love one another, not subdue and control one another. And when we're preoccupied with anything other than his word, we can't do that. We can't look out for one another. We can't love one another. Or if we do, we don't do it in the right way. So the king of kings wants to speak to his kings, which is us, so that they will follow his lead if they want his authority. I believe that's why Jesus was so amazed when the centurion came to him. Because the centurion, who was not an Israelite, understood authority better than anybody in the house of Israel. And that exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy, until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation and teaching. That's what we ought to be doing as the body of Christ. That's what we've been doing on Wednesday nights, is digging in and, and parsing words and, and figuring out, okay, like that doesn't sound right. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. Um, a few examples out of Scripture. And, and, and again, these are, these are nuggets. There's lots of parallels and patterns and principles to use a little bit of alliteration. You have to pay attention in order to catch the meaning and the real picture that's there. But just a, a couple of examples. There was approximately 400 years from when Genesis was written and to when Exodus occurred because they were in bondage for 400 years. There was 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. There were 3,000 that died at the mountain at the giving of the law, and there were 3,000 that were added to the church when the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. There were a whole generation of male children were killed when, around the time that Moses was born, when God was raising up a deliverer. An entire generation of children were killed in a town when Jesus was being raised up as the true deliverer. When God... When, when something is recorded in one place in Scripture and you see a similar pattern in another place, that's a time to start comparing and contrasting and listening what is, what's really going on. That was 
that's one of the ways that God speaks. And he hides things for us. And this is my closing scripture that I'm, that I'm my big point that I'm getting to. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, it says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a, mat- a matter. Again, having a human king to rule humans was fallen man's human idea. God worked through it, but it wasn't his desire. But just like God hides the gold in the earth, he hides truth in his word. And you can get the historical data by just reading the topical facts. But without a relationship with the Father, you won't pick up on the fact of what God was doing. Why? I believe the enemy knew that there was a deliverer being raised up, and that's part of the reason why... Um, Pharaoh wanted to kill all those boys because um, it was spoken that they would be in bondage for a period of time. Satan knows the word of God, and he, he will try to use it. Just look at what he did with Jesus in the wilderness. He quoted scripture, and Jesus also quoted scripture because Satan will quote part of scripture and not the full scripture. So as kings, if it's the glory of God to conceal things, and it's the glory of kings to search out things, and we're called to be kings. It's on us to press in and pay attention and dig and, and take a look at the deep details. Luke 4, 4 and Matthew 4, 4 both have the same. It's fascinating that these both, they're two accounts of the same thing and they have the exact same quote in them. It's when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's different and if you, only get in, if you only pay attention to one version, the third temptation in Matthew is when Satan took Jesus onto a high place. And he said, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms for such have been delivered. No, he didn't say it there. He said, I'll give you all these kingdoms. It's only in Luke 4. It's in the, the account in Luke when you read those details that there's an extra little nugget that's added right there. And that's where Satan says, I'll give you all these kingdoms for they've been given to me. When I heard that, and I heard that explained, it really impacted my life and my faith and my walk with God and my identity. Because, again, I was under a little bit of that umbrella that God is sovereign, he's in control, and everything that happens is his will. And so when someone is murdered or something bad happens, you know, it's just the sovereign plan of God somehow, and he's making these things happen. No one ever, we, we didn't know this back then, that the world was cast into chaos when Adam and Eve stepped out of their authority and they gave the reins to the enemy. In Romans 6.16, it says, you become a slave of him whom you obey. So when Adam and Eve listened to the words of the enemy, we're, again, we're to listen to the words of the Father and submit to his authority, they gave the keys to the enemy. And then in uh, Romans 8.19, it says that creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. And that sons is not a, is not a gender. It's, it, it includes male and female. But this is the definition of a son, that, of that word, what it means. Properly, a son by birth or adoption, figuratively, figuratively, man, I'm stumbling over my words today. Anyone sharing the same nature as their father. For the believer, becoming a son of God begins with being reborn, That's when you're adopted by the Heavenly Father through Christ, the work of the Eternal Son. In the New Testament, 
You can go to Galatians 3.28 and you can see that it applies to female believers. But it emphasizes a likeness of the believer to the Heavenly Father. In other words, you resemble his character more and more by living in faith. Son highlights the legal right to the Father's inheritance as the believer lives in conformity with the Father's nature or purpose. Romans 8.19, the earth is groaning. Romans 6.16, you're a slave of him whom you obey. Luke chapter 4, the enemy says, the reason why I'm in control is because it was given to me. If you don't know how to put that together and realize it wasn't God that gave it to him, you're going to be stuck in one version of your journey until you get to heaven. And you're going to miss out on a lot. But I believe God wants us to have a renewed mind, and he wants us to be able to take back the things that have been stolen from us. And that's what God's word is for. And that's why it's important that we pay attention to the details. It's, a pinch, it's important that no matter... Where we are, what day of the week it is, or how we're feeling, we should wake up and we should go to sleep and we should live saying and desiring to say yes to what he is saying. That's how you become a king. That's how you answer the question of do you know who you are, is by searching out the things that have been hidden by God for you, not from you. Please stand. Father, we thank you that you had a plan. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. And you had a plan before we messed it all up. You knew what we were going to do. But you didn't just institute a plan to keep us from going to hell and to get us into heaven. You put in place a plan to restore us and to allow us to recapture and reclaim and take back what the enemy stole from us. And I thank you, Father, that we don't have to be anything more than your kids saying yes to you. We don't have to be powerful. We don't have to be strong. We don't have to be better or bigger than the enemy because you're all those things. And we are in you. Father, I pray right now, if there's anybody here that has not said yes to you and had that Red Sea experience and received the blood of Jesus to pay for their sins, I ask God that you would just show them that they need to say yes to you in that way. And Father, for those believers who may have lost their way and their purpose and may have become discouraged or may not have crossed over that Jordan River and received the power, the helper, we receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that outpouring of life and power, is a secondary experience, just like walking through the Jordan River was a secondary experience for the Israelites. God, no matter where we are in our journey, help us to say yes. And my challenge to you, everyone who's here today, it doesn't matter how you say yes as long as you're saying yes to what God leads you to do. So you could kneel. You could raise your hand. You could, after the service, Take responsibility and be diligent to go to somebody and say, look, God is dealing with me on something, and I want to say yes in a way that I never have before. I did that last night when I was working on my message. I hit a roadblock, and, and I called my wife in, and we talked, and we prayed, and I said, I, I, need to, I want to go to the next level. I don't want to be where I've been. I want to do things differently. And I really believe that's what repentance looks like. Change the way you think and tell God, I'm willing to say yes to you in whatever way you want me to. I don't care what is uncomfortable or what is unfamiliar or what is threatening. If you tell me to do it, I want to say yes to it. God, we believe that you have an inheritance for us this side of eternity. 
We are not here to play games or to go to church or perform rituals or to uh, perform for one another or entertain one another. And God, we don't want to be distracted from the purpose that you have for us. We don't want to devalue. We don't want to do. We don't want to diminish the value of the inheritance that you purchased for us and that you provided for us and that you've destined for us, God. So help us, Lord, to, to really be honest with you about answering the question, do we know who we are in Christ? And God, Father, help us to say yes to you in a new way so that we can be transformed from glory to glory because your mercies are new every morning. You've got more for us every single day. God, we just rebuke the lie right now that you are somehow into religion or rituals or any of those things, Father God, or that you're performance-based or that we're just waiting and biding our time. Help us, Father, to see the, the awesome, incredible adventure that lies before us. And Father, in closing, I ask that you would touch us all and convict us in our own unique, special way, but challenge, encourage, convict everyone to say yes to you in a new way today than they ever have and to adopt that as a new mindset going forward, that we will do whatever you say. We will be willing, and with your help, we're going to take back the things that the enemy has stolen from us. We are going to possess the promised land. We're going to embrace the conflict, not in our strength, God, but in yours, and we're going to lay our lives down, and we're going to receive what you have for us through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen.